We are continuing in a sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. We're over halfway through this series. We've been in it for a few months. And um, over the past couple of weeks, we have watched uh, Jesus and his disciples begin to, to move from where they've spent most of their time in Galilee and now begin uh, to orient themselves toward Jerusalem. So we heard from Dennis last week, Pastor Michelle I will preach uh, this morning. So let's just pray a blessing over her. God, thank you for the word that you've given to, um, to our pastor today. Uh, Lord, would you help her to, to, uh, to speak it confidently, uh, humbly before you, uh, but with great uh, trust that, um, that your word is active and alive and is not going to fall on deaf ears, but will do whatever it needs to do for the good of your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. So as Pastor David said, we're continuing in Mark, and we're going to go ahead and just get right into the Word of God today. I'll be reading from Mark chapter 9, verse 30, through chapter 10, verse 12. And just as a reminder of what came before, uh, Jesus has finished healing the demon-possessed man, and um, they have this conversation, right, because the disciples are confused as to why you know, they weren't able to cast out that demon. And so the last words that we heard Jesus say is that, you know, some come out only by prayer. And so now they're continuing on in their journey. Um, and I'm going to invite you to stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. So beginning with verse 30, it reads, They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Calpurnium, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because, of, because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, those who believe in me to stumble... It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. 
everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Moving on um, to chapter 10, it reads, Jesus then left that place and went into re- to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So there's a lot here. Um, But this text begins with a very important statement about the disciples. So Jesus, for the second time, is predicting his death. Um, He makes a statement that, you know, he is going to be killed and raised from the dead. He tells them that he's going to be betrayed into the hands of men, but on the third day, he'll rise from the dead. The disciples hear this, and the text tells us that they don't understand what it means. Um, Now, there are two things, before we move on with their response to not understanding, there are two things that are key here. The first um, has to do specifically with their lack of understanding. So to be clear, Jesus is not being cryptic in this passage. I mean, yes, he is speaking in the third person. But this is now, like I said, the second time that he has predicted his death. This is the third time that he has made comments about rising from the dead. In fact, he just made a comment about this like a day ago. If you can remember when they come down from the mountain after the transfiguration, Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody what you saw here until, and he uses that phrase, the son of man has been risen. And the text tells us that they did not understand what he was saying then either. So far from being cryptic, this should actually be very clarifying, right? Oh, okay. So when he said the son of man will be risen from the dead. He meant, oh, he's oh killed. Oh, and then you're going to not be dead anymore. Like that, it should be clarifying. It's not confusing. He's not speaking in parables. He didn't say, you know, the son of man is like a seed of wheat that falls to the ground and withers, but in three days time sprouts. It. Like, right, like this is not one of the moments where you will look at Jesus and say, what are you talking about? But they don't, they don't understand. Why? Why can't they get it? Why is this so hard for them to grasp? So I, I'm convinced that it, it was difficult for them to understand this for the same reason that they couldn't understand it the first time or, or the, the second time. Everything in their culture, everything that they knew, everything went against what Jesus was saying he was, right? Right? 
they, they couldn't grasp it because it just was so outside of what they thought, what they had grown up believing that the Messiah was supposed to be, look like, and do. They couldn't get it. Now, if you've been coming to this church for any amount of time, this is not the first time you have heard this. We talk about this a lot. The disciples' inability to see who Jesus was because they were blinded by their culture. And not just the disciples. Everybody. This was the problem. Jesus as a Messiah didn't look like what people were expecting the Messiah to look like. But the thing that I don't want us to miss, and the thing that, that this really drives home for us or should drive home for us, It's how powerful culture is on our perspective. They could not wrap their minds around very clear words that Jesus was saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to be dead in three days, like specifics, time frames. In three days, I'm going to get, they couldn't wrap their minds around it because it did not, it didn't vibe with their expectations. It wasn't in line with their cultural expectations. And this is not just for them. This is absolutely us. So I'm sure you all have heard the expression, um, you only hear what you want to hear. My children demonstrate that for me like on a daily basis. I'm positive you heard. I was loud. I spoke clearly, right? You only hear what you want to hear. When I was in high school and even before junior high, high school, I used to uh, wear a lot of African clothes. And so I would wear gaylays, which is um, a Nigerian uh, head wrap. And I wear this all the time. And so it was not uncommon for me to have my hair wrapped and wear, have on the dashiki and some jeans. Um, and so I grew up in a community where it was very common for, um, for guys to drive up alongside of you and, you know, and either a cat call or try to have a conversation with you. Yeah, right. So... It would often be the case that as I'm walking down the street, I'd have on my gele and I'd have on my dashiki and some guy would drive up and the conversation almost always started with like, my sister, <laughs> like, you are beautiful. What is your name? Now, this is the part that was funny because could, you could see in, in their faces, I could always see this, this like preparing themselves to be able to say my name, right? Because they knew that my name was something not like Michelle. So I would say to them, like, I would say, Michelle, M- M- Mich- Michelle, like, yes, yes, Michelle, right? They knew, they had already prepared themselves because their cultural expectation of what someone dressed like me, the kind of name I should have, they shouldn't be able to pronounce that name. So they were already ready to not be able to pronounce that name. And it didn't just happen, it was funniest when it happened in those moments, but it happened a lot where I would introduce myself to people and they would trip up on the name Michelle. I know you know the name Michelle. I know, like every third person when I was growing up was named Michelle. So I know you can say this, right? But it's, that's what happens to us. You, we can't hear past, right, what we expect. We can't hear past what we expect. And this is what was the problem with the disciples. They could not hear past their expectations of who Jesus was supposed to be. So said in the inverse, our expectations can make us deaf and blind to what is very clearly in front of us. So then the question is, what part of the gospel have we become deaf and blind to? What are the the things that our culture, and that includes our church culture, what are the things that we can't see, that we can't hear if 
Christ was screaming with a bullhorn, we wouldn't be able to comprehend because our expectations have been shaped in a different sort of a way. So I want you to hold on to that. We're going, to move, we're going to come back to this, but this brings us to the next sort of um, movement in the text. The second thing that the disciples do that's important, that they don't ask for clarification. They don't understand, and the text tells us that they are afraid to ask Jesus what he meant. Now, given Jesus' mood just a few beats back, Perhaps we can understand, right? If you recall, when, he, when the disciples were not able to cast out the demon from the, the boy, Jesus' response is like, how, how long? How long must I deal with you people? <laughs> right? He's not very pleased. Peter was, you know, told, Jesus said to him, get thee behind me, Satan, the first time, right, that he predicted his death. So maybe we can understand why they're a little bit, you know, fearful about telling Jesus, you know, you know, you keep saying this thing and we don't get it. Could you um, maybe be more clear? (laughs) But, But this speaks to us as well. How often have you been afraid to know more? I'm convinced that there are questions, there are conversations that we don't have in the church because we're really afraid of what God might say. <laughs> we, and do, amen. <laughs> we are afraid of what God might say. We are afraid of what he might do. We're afraid of what we might hear. I think that especially in a church like this where by world standards, everybody in here is very wealthy, certainly by even American standards, we are all middle class again, whatever that might mean, <laughs> right? There are things that we don't necessarily, we, okay, let's not dig too far there because God might, con, might say something that convicts me. God might challenge the career path that I've chosen. God might challenge the way I've decided I want to spend my money. God might challenge who we decided is welcome. God might challenge the kind of person I've decided I'm going to marry. Like, we don't want to push too hard, right? We don't want to dig too deep. Because we're afraid. We're afraid of what Jesus, what the Holy Spirit might say. So as we journey through, we find Jesus um, talking to his disciples about this whole discourse on stumbling. It is so fitting that today was a dedication, right? Jesus is with the disciples, and after sort of gently chastising, correcting more so their, their conversation about who's going to be first in the kingdom, he starts to talk about this idea of um, how serious it is for us to cause another person to stumble. And he uses a child, that same child that was in the text when he says, if you, you have to be like this child, don't discourage this child from coming, someone like this. And he says, hey, anyone who causes a child, one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for them to drown, right? It would be better for them. If if something in you is causing you to stumble, it'd be better for you to cut off your hand, gouge out your eye. Now, he is not being literal, right? So do not, don't walk from this place and say, well, Pastor Michelle said, if I keep having these sinful, looking at sinful things, I should just gouge, don't do that. But the point is how seriously Christ takes this. Anyone who causes these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a millstone were tied around their neck and they were drowned in the sea. 
And then at the end of that, Jesus commands them to have salt among themselves and to be at peace with each other. So what's important to see here, and everything that I've said thus far, hold on to it, because we're coming back to everything in the end. But what's important to see here um, is that this is directed to believers. And this is different. The When we see Matthew give this account and he talks about us being salt, he says that we're the salt of the earth. The the implication there is that we are supposed to be witnesses, right? We're supposed to be to people out there a signpost that says, but this is what Jesus is like. This is what the kingdom looks like. But, But in Mark's gospel, it's a little bit different. We're to be salt among each other, for each other, right? Mark In Mark's account, this is directed towards the body, towards those who believe. So which is it? The answer is that it's both. We have absolutely been called to be witnesses to the unbelieving world. But we've also been called into a body. And we have been called to be witnesses to each other. I love in the dedication that the idea that we talk about as a body, we all commit to living our lives in such a way that these children who are among us grow up knowing who Christ is, that we don't cause them to stumble. I guarantee you that every person in this room, I would be surprised if there's one who doesn't fit into this category. We all know someone who grew up in the church and doesn't go to church anymore because they were hurt by the church. Right? There's a song lyric um, by an artist, India Irie, that I love, and she says, no one has the power to hurt you like your kin. And it's true. We're the family, right? We're, we're the body. We are the brothers and sisters in Christ. The kind of pain that we can inflict on one another, the kind of wounds that we can inflict on each other, those are difficult wounds to heal from. We all know someone. There may be some of us who are those people who were hurt by the church and have found our way back, limping and wounded and broken. Um. We are called to be witnesses to each other. Christ cares not only about our witness to the world out there. He cares about our witness to one another. He cares about the way we love one another. He cares about the way we show kindness to one another. He cares that we are careful about the things we say to each other. It's important as people of God to be discerning what God's word says to us in the context of a community And it is important to do that in a way that is humble so that when we are talking about what we are, I'm praying for you, I'm helping you discern what God is saying to you. I'm not saying things that are harmful to you, right? I'm not causing wounds. We have to be careful. God cares about this. Here's here's a little known fact about me. I um, cannot stand and refuse to watch most movies about the Bible. Now, you're probably like, well, that does not seem right, Pastor Michelle. (laughs) I won't do it. I did not watch the History Channel's miniseries on the Bible. I have not seen the new and improved Moses. I'm not going to do it. I won't. I am so very much not here for Hollywood Jesus and Hollywood Moses. I can't. I I cannot. (laughs) I cannot. Um, I have, um, there's a children's Bible, uh, Pastor David um, put me on to. It's an amazing Bible. Um, this is the Jesus Storybook Bible. You ever have, 
even if you don't have kids, I'm going to tell you right now, I understood the story of Isaac and Abraham better reading that Bible <laughs> than I ever have reading the, you know, the actual story. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful book. And so I went out and I bought it for my children. And I spent an entire evening with different um, wood polish markers, you know, the little markers that you can, coloring all of the images in the Bible, different shades of brown. I am not here for white Jesus. My Jesus can't have blue eyes. My Jesus can't have light, sandy brown hair. My Jesus can't have a glow and be fit. Nope, I'm not here for it. And I don't want my children to be exposed to it. Now, you might say, well, that feels a little bit extreme, Pastor Michelle. Did you color the... Did. I colored every last one. Every last one. And I'll tell you why. See, I grew up being raised by people for whom blonde hair, blue-eyed Jesus had been the stumbling block that caused them to leave the church and never come back. I know people now who I pray and I believe through the Holy Spirit that God can save everybody, but I cannot even imagine. There are people who I love dearly, who I cannot fathom being inside of a church because blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus ran them out. Because blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus is symbolic of a religion that justified their slavery, that justified their inhumane treatment, and then condemned them when they wanted to protest that treatment, right? Blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus is symbolic of a faith that is not the faith I profess today, but they don't know that because blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus was a stumbling block. Far from just being and historical inaccuracy, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, sandy-brown, fair-skinned, that Jesus is a stumbling block for many people and a representation of ways that the church has wounded and continues to wound many people. And so I cringe whenever I see that. What are the things that we have made stumbling blocks for other people? For those of us who confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and if we take these words seriously, then what we have to know is that God cares about that. That matters a lot (laughs) to Jesus. And so we as the body should always be trying to say, in what ways might we be causing people to stumble? In what ways might we be harming people? Who might we be harming? Who's not here? Who's not represented? Why? Who struggles here? Who suffers here? How? How might we be causing pain? It matters to God. And so our question should be, how might we be causing someone to stumble? So hold on to that. Finally, we come to chapter 10. And we find Jesus having another encounter with the Pharisees. And um, they had come once again to test him because by this point, they are like, nope, you got to go. And so they want to trick him. They want to catch him up any way they possibly can. So they pose this question about divorce. And I'm just going to read again those verses for you. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. <laughs> and uh, I love the way that Matthew's gospel tells this because the, he, he records the, the re- disciples' reaction to this. And they're like, well, you know what, then if that's the case, it'd be better for people to just not get married. Don't do that. And that should tell you something about how, um, how these words would have struck the people who heard it originally. So first, let me give you some background to maybe help you understand why the disciples would have such a reaction. Moses um, had given men, and this is an important distinction, uh, men. In Judaism, women were not permitted typically to divorce their husbands except in very um, extreme circumstances. So for the most part, men had this, this privilege. He had given them the permission to dismiss their wives, to divorce their wives if they found, um, you know, indecency in them after giving them a certificate of divorce. And this certificate was, you know, supposed to be a measure of protection. Prior to this, a, a, a husband could wake up one morning and decide, I don't, I didn't like the way you made the bed, and so get out, right? Uh, so, so and, and if that husband did that, Another thing that could happen is a person could, you may be remarried, decide, I've changed my mind, and so now I want you back, Um, which could be, as one might imagine, a little bit disruptive if that woman had already remarried someone. So the idea of having a certificate was supposed to be a sort of a protection. It meant that a woman who remarried, one, couldn't be accused of adultery, um, you know, because if you were married, if I, you all know that I'm married to Carlos, so if we're you know, several thousand years ago, and we're not married anymore. Well, how do you know that? If you see me now married to John, because, sorry, but if you see me now <laughs> married to John, like, that could be, conf- like, what, what, right? You know, so the, at the very least, there was a way for her to be able to say, you know, no, I, he divorced me, right? So she couldn't be accused of adultery. And then also, um, it kept the husband from having that change of heart and then deciding that he wanted to remarry her. So the law that was given was sort of an imperfect solution um, to a problem caused by our sinfulness. All right, that's, I'm sure we would all agree, not what God had in mind when he created marriage. And ultimately, the whole law was an, an imperfect provision for God's people to help them live according to his will, even though we can't live according, right? We can't keep it. We can't do it perfectly. Um, but what the law had become was, was culture, right? It was, it was religion. Um, far more than just outlining what people could do in their religious lives, the law shaped the norms and it shaped the values of that society. And more importantly, it had been shaped by the values of society. So what do I mean by that? Um, I've talked about this in the past. One way that the Pharisees um, sort of made sure that the law was, was kept was by drawing, you know, a circle around the laws, one way that people will talk about it. So, for example, if the law says that no one but the pastor can touch that cross, right? That's the law. No one but the pastor can touch the cross. Well, the leadership team of this church might decide, okay, so what we're going to say is that nobody but the pastor can walk past this line, right? The idea is we want to make sure that nobody but the pastor touches this cross. So there were a lot of, of sort of norms and values and rules that had been added, in a way, um, to the law. 
the law in many ways had become itself an idol. And we can hear this in the, the very way that the Pharisees word the question. So think about what they ask. They don't, they don't come to Jesus and say, um, does God permit a man to divorce his wife, right? That's not their concern. Their concern is, how are you going to interpret the law? That's the, that's the big thing. That's the important thing. Is divorce permissible according to the law? The law was, in many ways, their God, and their interpretation of the law was king. And so Jesus unmasks all this with his counter question. What did Moses, not the Lord, right? He doesn't say, what did the Lord, what did Moses command you? And then he goes beyond the letter of the law to the intent behind it. It was God's intent from the beginning for a husbands and wives to be united forever. This was a permanent thing. Husbands and wives become one flesh. There was no divorce, no, no backup plan or contingency plan in the Garden of Eve, Eden. He didn't say, Adam, you know what, here is Eve. Um, in the event that she gets on your nerves, uh, you know, just we'll talk about it first, but then, you know, go ahead and you can find someone else maybe, right? There, there, that wasn't the vision. That wasn't the plan. And so there, there are two important ways that this text speaks to us. The first is that this passage causes us to really sort of consider what are the cultural elements, um, and again, this includes church culture, what are those cultural elements that we have elevated above God? Um, and, a, and a really good way to see that, what would our question look like? So we probably wouldn't say the, the law. We, we might say, you know, does the Bible permit me to do whatever I want to do with my finances as long as I give 10% in tithe? Um, does the Bible permit me to do whatever I want to with my boyfriend or my girlfriend as long as we don't go all the way and have, like, actual sex, right? Um, hmm. Does the Bible permit me to choose whatever career path I want and as long as I'm blessed? Because, right, if I have a lot, that's a sign that you, you, you like me, right? Does the Bible permit that? Like, what would our question look like if we were to pose this to Jesus? Here, here's another way to get at it. Um, how does culture shape what aspects of God's word we think are important? What don't we talk about in church? Why don't we talk about it? When was the last time you heard someone talk to you about diet and exercise? Like, how come we don't, we don't talk about health or food? Why don't, that, I've never, ever, I've been a Christian for a long time, and I love church. I used to be in church all the time, all week, all day. I've never heard a sermon about health, diet, right? Why? Do you think it's a coincidence that in a culture that is where the pharmaceutical industry makes lots and lots of money that we don't talk about things like health and wellness, right? I mean, why? Why don't, why don't we see that as, as important? Why don't we talk about it? The second thing, though, that I want us to take away from this text is that um, this is more than just about divorce. This passage is also about privilege. See, one of the biggest things that will hinder us, hinder our ability to hear what God is doing, to experience conviction from the Holy Spirit in, in areas of our lives that we have sort of said, nope. <laughs> one of the biggest things that will, will be the hindrance for us is a desire to hold on to our privilege. And we all have some, some, some kind of privilege that we hold tightly to. 
class privilege, race privilege, gender privilege, American privilege, the privilege of just being able to be comfortable. What Our privilege and wanting to cling to that will keep us from hearing God. See, divorce at this time was, was absolutely an exercise of privilege. It was male privilege. Men were heads of families. Men were heads of communities. It was through men that wealth was acquired, and it was through men that wealth was passed on. What women had in most cases, not in all cases, but in most cases, what women had was very much contingent on what the men in their lives had. First their fathers, then their husbands. And it's in this context that we're talking about divorce and that men felt very entitled to the privilege of being able to divorce their wives. And again, you can hear this in the question. I mean, why do the Pharisees come and ask about divorce in the first place? There's some who argue that perhaps one of the things that the Pharisees were trying to do was get Jesus in trouble with the Herodian family. The Pharisees had aligned themselves with that family. And if you remember from John chapter 6, Herod had had John the Baptist arrested and subsequently killed because John the Baptist had challenged his divorce and remarriage to Herodias, right, his brother's wife. And so some believe that the reason why the disciple, or excuse me, the Pharisees come at Jesus in this particular way is because they want him to say something that's going to upset that family. This is a touchy subject for them. This was very much about privilege, And what does Jesus do? He does not play games with them. He unmasks, first of all, their intent. He unmasks their wrong and their wrong thinking of the law by by challenging them, well, who commanded you? Well, let me take it a little bit further. And then he says, no, what God has brought together, let no man separate. The privilege that you have enjoyed, that's not according to the word of God. And so, no, no, you can't do that. Sure, according to the law, you're fine, but that's not at the center of God's will for your life, and so no. God challenges their privilege, and he extends this to women. He goes farther when he talks to the disciples. Not only can they not get divorced, but if they remarry, it's adultery. He pushes it much further than it would have ever been pushed, and that's why in Matthew's gospel, the disciples say, well, well, why would we get married then? For life? Really? No. I don't, I don't know if we should do that. It challenged their privilege. It challenged the status quo. It challenged what their culture said was okay, and so they resisted it. What are the things that our privilege keeps us from seeing? What are the things that our privilege, our desire to hold on to our privilege, keeps us from doing, keeps us from hearing, What activity of God do we miss because we have decided that we like our lives the way they are and we don't really want them to change? How have we been blinded? See, I've seen firsthand what it looks like when the church is a stumbling block. And what this text tells us is that God cares about that. And when you and I make our privilege, make our comfort, make our class, make our whatever fill in the blank, when we make anything greater than God, when we make our cultural norms and values greater than God, what we become is a stumbling block for someone. And God cares about it. 
you and I, we don't get to live unchallenged lives. You don't get to just be comfortable and have the Holy Spirit not speak to you in ways you don't want to be spoken to. You don't get to just walk around and do what you do and never have to think about it or be critical about why you make the choices you make and whether or not those choices have been submitted to the Holy Spirit. We don't get to live that life. When you said, I follow you, Jesus, what we say is every part of my life, every, there is not a single thing in me that I withhold from you. And we don't do that perfectly. We all struggle with that, but we should be struggling with that, right? A struggle doesn't feel comfortable. So either you are uncomfortable because the Holy Spirit is convicting you, or you are uncomfortable because you recognize that there's a part of you that you're holding back from God, and the Holy Spirit is convicting you. But you don't get to just be comfortable. We don't get to do that because when we are, when we choose our comfort, when we choose our safety, when we choose our our race, when we choose our gender, when we choose whatever kind of privilege we have, when we choose that over the gospel, there are people who don't hear the gospel. And we don't get to do that. And as Pastor David preached a couple of weeks ago, see... (laughs) This is the, the interesting thing, and, the, and I think the beautiful thing about the Holy Spirit and his conviction. Jesus' command to take up your cross, right? And he talked about that in the, in the context of privilege, that command to take up your cross and follow him. For some people, that will feel immediately like liberation. And for other people, that will feel initially like death, Right? There are times when God will call us to take up our cross, and for those who are on the other side of privilege, it'll feel refreshing. It'll feel like, thank you. I know I've been seen by God. You see my situation. You see my suffering. You've heard my cries. Thank you. It means I have agency. I don't have to be defined by that cross. For others of us, all of us fall into this category. There will be times when that call to take up your cross and follow Jesus will feel like death because it is death. But something we've been holding on to has to die. And we don't want to let that go. Nobody likes that. But the good news is that there is life. (laughs) There's abundant life on the other side of that. Not a single one of us get to escape the paradox of conviction. That for some, that conviction about privilege will feel liberating. And for others, it will feel painful. For all of us, it is liberating, though. For all of us, it is a call into something that is greater. And none of us can escape that paradox. And the good news is that none of us have to be fearful of those times when we are challenged, when we feel broken, because we haven't been broken. Not really. Not unto death, because Christ was already broken. Because Christ was broken unto death. Christ did die. We don't have, that, that's not our, our, our condemnation. That's not our, we don't have to fear that cross, right? That cross is liberating to us. We get to live free and we get to live in a way that says, I'm living and I know I am not causing someone else's suffering and pain. Isn't that good, right? Don't, don't you want that? Don't you want to be able to live? I'm convinced that that's part of God's abundant life. The call to live in a way where not, you don't only experience freedom, but you know that your freedom is not at someone else's expense. The kind of freedom that we experience in our culture is absolutely at someone else's expense. Almost everything that we do in this country is at someone else's expense, whether you see it or not. But the freedom that Christ calls us into is not at anyone else's expense. Everyone gets to experience that. Everyone gets that liberty. Everyone has that freedom, that joy, that abundance. That's the good news. So it's my prayer for us as a church 
And I pray that all the time, especially lately. Like this has been, every time I pray, I find myself praying against fearfulness. But I pray this because I'm convinced that we are, we are a bunch of cowards. We're so afraid, right? We're afraid to be wrong. We're afraid for someone to call us out. I'm a sociologist, and so, um, you know, I use the term racist all the time. And I love to do it because it's a term that it messes with people. Like, people don't know why it wants to be racist. Like, why? If you're a Christian, you, you can say, yep, I'm racist. You can do it. It's okay. Because in Christ, you don't have to stay that way, right? You're not going to stay that way. You can face whatever it is. Sexist. What, what is the label that you don't like? Classist. Um, Americanist. Nope. There's a word for nationalist. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> like, whatever the ist is, whatever the thing is, whatever the label is, we're so afraid to be called. That We're so afraid to be labeled. You, we, that, there is no fear. There is therefore now no fear in Christ. His perfect love casts out all fear. There is no condemnation for those who have been called. Right? We don't have to be afraid. So that means I can look at it. I can look at my ugliness. I can look at my sinfulness. And I can say, Jesus, take it. Help me. Heal me. You can say to me, those words offended me and they hurt me deeply. You were culturally insensitive and it hurt me deeply. And I'm not wounded. I can say, explain it. Tell me. How, how so? Teach me. Let, me. let me educate myself. Right? I'm not, we don't have to be afraid. Amen. Amen. So we, my prayer for us is that we will live and we will be bold, we will be courageous, we will not be afraid. And as a body, we will constantly be seeking God's face to find out what are those things, Lord? What are those cultural things, those places of privilege that we have elevated above you and that may be a stumbling block to some even among us and maybe a hindrance to those who would want to be those among us? Amen. So I'm going to invite the worship team um, to come up. and. I'm going to pray for our offering, um, but even before that, in this space, if you're sitting here, um, I, I do believe that the Holy Spirit has a way that, that he would like us to respond. Um, and I shouldn't say us, you specifically to respond. Every word that God gives us, it, it's for us and it is for the body. And so if you're here and uh, maybe you're saying, that sounded, you know, that sounded good, I, but I don't know Jesus in that way. Like, I, I'm not... I do have fear. I don't want to be labeled with any of those things because I don't have the confidence that it's already been done, that the battle has been won and, I, and I'm not condemned. Um, and maybe you want to accept Jesus for the first time, then I want to invite you to, in this space, um, to go ahead and do that. And after service, if you want to talk to me about it or Pastor David or anyone on the prayer team, we would love to pray with you and to talk to you. Um, and maybe you are a Christian and... Um, there's some other things, some places where you have been holding back from God. There's some things that God is trying to say to you and some things, and it may not be this big as any of the isms or the ists. Maybe it's something very specific to who you are. God might be calling you into a new career or calling you to do something, and you, every time you think you hear the Lord speaking, you're like, let me turn on the TV, right? <laughs> Anytime you feel like God might be stirring, you're like, I wonder what's happening on Facebook or YouTube, right? Because you don't want, you're not ready. You don't want to deal with that. So maybe in this space, um, you can take a moment to just invite God to help you with your unbelief and with your fear, and to just sit and be silent and hear what the Holy Spirit has to say.
But however, however the Holy Spirit might be leading you to respond, I want to just create a space for you um, to be able to do that. And I'm going to go ahead and pray for us and then pray for the offering. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. God, you are so, so good. I am beyond thankful for your sacrifice on the cross. I am beyond thankful for the fact that I can stand before you exactly as I am and be accepted and be seen and be loved and be known. God, I pray that that truth would be the foundation of everything that we do in this church. I pray that that truth would be the foundation for every single person here, whatever ways you might be speaking to them individually, to us corporately. Lord, let that truth be the place where we rest when we start to feel afraid. That in you the battle has been won, that in you the condemnation has already been taken and dealt with, and we don't have to live under that burden. God, I pray that you would make this church um, bold in you, God. I pray that there would not be a single dark place that we decide we're comfortable keeping in darkness. I pray that your light would penetrate in this place. It would penetrate in every area of our hearts, Lord. God, and I thank you that you are kind, and I thank you that you are gentle. I know I can't take all my ugliness at once. I thank you that you deal with us gently, God. But it is my prayer, Lord, that you will constantly be dealing with us. And you would help us to not run away from it. You would help us to not resist it. I pray for this week specifically that you would give each and every person under the sound of my voice times and spaces where there is silence. I don't care if power has to go out, Lord. Whatever it takes, I pray that you would bring us into places where we are silent before you. Where those of us who have been running from what you are trying to do, those of us who have been closing our eyes and plugging our ears and saying, la, 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 I can't hear you, I can't see you, I pray that you would put us in a place where your voice is the absolute loudest thing that we hear. Put us in a place where the scales fall from our eyes and we see you very clearly. And God, for any person for whom that sounds scary to right now, In the name of Jesus, I cast out that fear. Help us to be bold in you. Help us to delight and rejoice in what you have called us to do and who you have called us to be. You are a God who always gives good gifts. And you are a God who is always working all things together for our good. So help us to rest in that, O God. And Father, as we prepare our hearts um, to give, give our offering, our tithes, Lord. I ask, as I often do, that you would help us to do it as an act of worship. I pray, God, that you would help us to do it as an act of rebellion against everything our culture tells us. We would let us be people who give to you, affirming that you are the God who is our provider, that we don't rely on our jobs, that we don't rely on anything but you. God, I pray that you would help us to be people who are mindful of the ways that we have, in fact, relied on our own strength, our knowledge, our ability, our privilege. God, remove all that. As we give our gifts, let us do it as an act of rebellion against that cultural norm. Help us to do it as an act of surrender 
and as an act of worship to you, God. And I pray that you will take those gifts and that you will multiply those gifts and that you will use them to mightily advance your kingdom through a people who are unafraid to advance your kingdom mightily. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.